Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of Safe Speaks, a podcast brought to you by sexual assault peer educators. Just as a reminder, SAFE is a student group committed to educating the Georgetown community about interpersonal violence and supporting survivors of sexual assault. SAFE hopes that this collection of conversations will encourage, support, educate, and inspire necessary dialogue in the Georgetown community. We want to remind listeners that the views expressed in this podcast are a representation of the speakers themselves and not all reflect those of SAFE, Health Education Services, or Georgetown itself. With all of that being said, let's dive into today's episode where we hope to learn more about interpersonal violence among undocumented survivors. I'm Esme Kalbag, and I'm a junior in the SFS majoring in SIA with a concentration in global health and biotechnology. This is my third year at SAPE, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Hi, I'm Noah Offman, and I am a freshman in the NHS majoring in global health. This is my first year in SAPE, and I use she, her, her pronouns. Today, we are super excited to be joined by Jennifer Crewalk, who is the Associate Director for Undocumented Survivors at the Center for Multicultural Equity and Access for Georgetown University. Jen, thank you so much for being with us here today. Just to start, could you quickly introduce yourself and your work with the CMEA? Sure, great. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited to uh, dive into this conversation. Before we start, uh, my name is Jen Crewalk. My pronouns are she, her, ella, and um, I work at CMEA, the Center for Multicultural Equity and Access, as part of Student Affairs Division. I've been here two years now. I started right before the pandemic, and so it's been a little bit of a whirlwind. And uh, yes, so then we can get started. The first thing I want to do today is given the topic we're talking about, it's really important for me that everyone listening is feeling safe in their bodies, is feeling safe in entering into this conversation with us and being a part of the podcast today. And so in addition to my responsibilities as an associate director for undocumented student services, I am also a yoga meditation instructor and a somatics student. And so today we're going to do a somatic centering practice. And this is really the goal here is just to increase your feelings of safety. So you feel protected enough to listen and lean into our conversation today. So we're going to center in our width, our length, our depth, and what we care about. And so the very first thing I want to do is we're going to center in our width, which means if you're, if you're sitting down or standing up, you're gonna move your feet so they're right underneath your hips. And this is our way of taking up our space in the world. What I mean by that is you're not minimizing yourself and you're not overreaching or taking up more than your space. So please move your feet right underneath your hips and see how that feels. Now gently press your toes into the ground. And just feel the ground not moving. Take a deep breath in and a big breath out, bringing your heels and your toes deeply into the ground.
now that we've centered in our width, we're gonna center in our length, which means lifting up our back through our spine, lifting up your shoulders, bringing your shoulders all the way up to your ears, taking a nice deep breath in. And as you exhale, drop your shoulders down, push your shoulders back. Inhale again, big exhale. And here you're lengthening your spine, you're being the tallest version of yourself. And this length in your spine is just a reminder of the dignity you hold. You're centering in that dignity. Not because of anything you do, but just that you exist as a human being in this world, in this body. So in this moment, embrace the length in your spine. Deep breath in, deep breath out. Good, now that we centered in our width and our length, we're now gonna center in our depth. So we're going to negotiate leaning too far forward and leaning too far back. And so if you lean so far forward, your lower back starts feeling a little tense, right? And we live very forward motion lives. What's next? To-do lists, busyness. And so if you're feeling a little too far forward right now in this moment, go ahead and lean back. So you're over your hips. And if you're feeling so far back that your stomach is now a little clenched, maybe it's time to center and enter and lean in a little bit more. So you negotiate that depth for you. Once you find that, bring your palms to your heart and stacking your hands on your heart. Take a nice deep breath in and exhale out. Holding your width, holding your length, holding your depth. Just center on what you care about in this moment. What do I care about? What do I care about? Just connect your breath to your heartbeat, to your hands. Big breath in, big breath out. And so I welcome you into this space. If at any time you're feeling uncomfortable, take care of yourself, do something comforting. And here we go. Amazing, thank you so much for leading us through that. So I'm just going to um, get right into it, their first question. So our first question is, why does exploring the intersection of documentation status and sexual violence matter, both in prevention and response? Great question. Um, so any conversation on immigration status is essentially a conversation about power and privilege, whether that's at the personal level, the family level, community, state, or national level. So since sexual violence is often per, uh, perpetuated through power, it is so important to address this. Um, 
I would say from the lived realities of crossing borders, women have been, have shared that they often sleep shoulder to shoulder with their children um, on top of them and put their arms over them as protection from coyotes or even other migrants crossing. Um, they're put in harm's way to escape from other types of systemic violence. Um, many migrants go through this. Sometimes they're also put further in harm's way by work conditions or practices, lack of basic needs, threats of violence in their countries, asylum policies, and practices that limit their safety. Some students I know, they had to flee their home countries to escape such violence and often have experienced violence here. Um, some of those students I support with legal counseling um, through our Catholic Charities Partnership. And some have even been screened to receive U visas. Um, so a U visa is a non-immigrant visa that is reserved for victims of crime who assist law enforcement. It's meant to protect and, and, and basically uh, reduce suffering um, from people who have experienced significant mental and physical abuse from some type of criminal activity. So this is one such pathway for people who have experienced violence. Um, though this process can be very long and taxing, sometimes people have to retell their stories of abuse, which cannot always be supported with documentation. Um, and some of times it's, um, it's not even possible without significant additional harm from remembering and retelling. So even though undocumented people who have not had these experiences have flown into the U.S. Some have lived here for 20 years and they may fear reporting sexual violence because of harm to themselves, perceived harm to a loved one, or fear of being deported. So undocumented students and their families are vulnerable to sexual violence, not only within a family or interpersonal violence, but also they're made more vulnerable from oppressive and exploitative state and national policies and practices. If you fear the police, ICE, deportation, ambiguous procedures, hospitals sharing immigration status, all of these strike fear into the hearts of migrants. Also, perpetrators may sometimes use immigration status as a threat or what we call a silencing mechanism. So this is also true if a survivor is a citizen but comes from a mixed status family and the threat is made against the loved one. Given all this, some survivors may choose to focus on healing themselves as an act of justice, as a personal act of justice versus seeking the US legal systems of justice. These choices are so deeply personal um, but they can be made with support from counselors and loved ones. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, I think something that, a question that comes to my mind is, how would you say undocumented identities impact how students of different racial backgrounds experience issues of sexual violence? Sure. Um, okay. So, well, as you know, undocumented identities intersect with all races. 
uh, many are even multiracial. Um, so many identities intersect, gender, many are multicultural. Um, so both undocumented and survivor identities are invisible at times, and yet they have very visible concrete impacts in the justice systems. So prevention and response also needs to look at those systems. So let me think. So for, let's say, ways of knowing, um, culture, ways of knowing, perceived rights of women, plus the added identity of being undocumented may perpetuate harm, or it could support liberation. So harm may happen so often intergenerationally that that trauma may be passed down. There may also be ways of normalizing, ways of looking away, ways of normalizing, staying quiet and keeping things in the family. And maybe even normalizing things that's specific to your family, specific to your culture, and even specific to ways of knowing about justice, power, and privilege. All of those things are learned if we don't believe a system is set up to support us, it can be very difficult to trust it. So to break against these learned cultural codes, to speak up and act is kind of an act of a resistance in itself. It's an act of self-care. It's an act of breaking the chain of intergenerational trauma and violence. This is only one of potentially many barriers though to disclosing and accepting help or counseling support to heal. So family members may keep the secrets and be afraid to even tell each other as well as a loving supportive person outside the family for fears of, let's see, not being believed, being ostracized or no longer belonging. Maybe fears of jeopardizing other family members, jeopardizing a family's income if if the violence is um, employer related, um, I would say also fear of, of their status being found out, um, that they may be detained or deported. Um, and those threats are real and they're scary. And then even you know a family member, um, threats against a family member. Um, all of these are examples I have heard. Okay, so this is just a gentle reminder this is, this is hard that we're talking about all of this, but important. It's important to share this and important for you to know and learn. Um, and for those of you who are directly impacted and listening, I want this to be a gentle reminder to take good care of yourself. And while you're listening today, drink water. If you are unsure of what you need in this moment, move towards something comforting for yourself. Okay, so let's move on to strengths. Um, those were some of the challenges, right? But I think we could learn more from asset-based views as well. What do you think? Yeah, um, first of all, thank you so much for that gentle reminder. I think that we could all really benefit from that. Um, and so my next question accordingly is what barriers do undocumented students face when accessing services and or support after surviving interpersonal violence? And how do the strengths of undocu identities influence those barriers? Yes, okay. All right, let's dive into this then. Um, 
Well, first and foremost, there's no one way of being an undocumented person. <laughs> like all survivors, there's so many resources. Um, so many resources need to be personalized for each nuance of a person's journey. Um, undocumented survivors, you know, have a few more, have a few more things that need to be personalized or considered to be deeply thoughtful in how we approach. So an undocumented survivor may not want the police involved, no matter how well-trained, no matter how sensitive the police um, are or are perceived to be. And, and we need to honor that. As I mentioned earlier, um, it's a really big fear uh, to have police involved for some, for some undocu survivors. So we always wanna make sure um, before the police is called, if that's okay. Some undocu survivors may not want to report the incident as we discussed earlier for fear of safety, uh, family safety, or even deportation concerns for themselves or loved ones. They may not want to report the incident. Sometimes they may want to report the incident at the time, but change their mind and that's okay. Some may fear that reporting may be scary, um, especially if they're not sure if it can be anonymous or what parts would be anonymous. And so having information, the information that SAFE provides, the information um, that can be for, provided during that time is super important because that will help an undocu survivor to make those decisions. I also, I would say that many people and undocu survivors, I would say many people have their own cultural ways of healing trauma. You know, our ancestors have done this for many, many years before the support systems that we know of today even existed. And so just as intergenerational trauma can sometimes be passed down, so can intergenerational healing, intergenerational resilience, intergenerational strengths. They too can be passed down. And so being open to new ways of knowing, new ways of healing and honoring that in an undocu survivor. Um, a lot of people may need new ways of healing. As we know, trauma is really stored in the body. And so some of healing that trauma may need a delicate approach for being aware and able to handle the sensations in the body. And some of these healing practices are not necessarily Western practices or Westernized practices, although they may complement each other. So I guess in essence, what I'm trying to say is undocumented students have so many systemic inequities. Um, however, many have so many personal and community strengths. Many undocumented students are the living embodiment of community resilience. They have deep connections through spiritual and cultural capitals. They have immense navigational strengths. Um, meaning their abilities to move forward despite constant ambigu ambiguity. Some are deeply motivated to be activists and their ancestors' legacies and being the starters of generational wealth for their, for their parents, for their siblings, for their own descendants. So those are some deeply motivating factors to heal. Some undocumented students feel their family and culture have passed down the strength, resilience, even boldness 
uh, to really step into their power and profoundly heal from trauma. So this healing might look different from US centric ways of knowing, but it's important to share. And so I just wanted to, to share that out. Um, some students may not want traditional talk therapy with someone outside of their cultural, religious, spiritual beliefs. Um, some may want this break and are curious to talk to someone neutral, someone outside of the family, uh, someone that doesn't know them. Um, and, and this may help to begin to explore some ways of healing or, or even acknowledging the trauma. So trauma-informed support is so important for this reason. Having resources that are undocu-informed, culturally competent and supportive of multiple ways of healing are the absolute ideal. So undocumented students, undocumented people, and undocumented survivors have strengths, but they still need support at institutional and systemic levels. And they need to know about and access that care. Looking at um, support at institutional and systemic levels and turning that focus towards Georgetown's campus specifically, how do we make Title IX and Georgetown campus disciplinary processes more inclusive and accessible to undocumented students? That's a great question. And I have been here almost two years. And so I've been in these conversations of how do these processes work at Georgetown. Uh, prior to Georgetown, I was at George Mason University for um, 10 years. And so um, every place has its own nuances, right? But some are, and some are consistent. And so um, I will share with you some things that I've learned and um, the processes um, that allow for filing a report to be anonymous without requiring a name, a permanent home address, um, which could leave you know, people feeling vulnerable. So for example, allowing for a pseudonym or choice of contact information. Um, individuals have the option of reporting incidents of such of sexual misconduct through a variety of ways. This includes disclosing to a non-confidential resource, a university, faculty, or staff, contacting a deputy Title IX coordinator, or submitting an online report. Online reports may be submitted anonymously, um, or individuals could choose to use a pseudonym to protect their identity. Isn't that great? If individuals, uh, are interested in receiving information on available support or resources, they could choose to include an email address, a Georgetown or non-Georgetown with, with their report. And the Title IX office will send them an email with helpful information. This is, um, this is the case regardless of whether they include a name or a pseudonym, you can still access those resources. I think that's important to note. It is never a requirement that individuals share their, their address in order to file a report with the Title IX office. If an individual wants to pursue a formal complaint against a Georgetown student, uh, they would need to share their name, but they would not need to provide an address. And that's if you wanted to pursue a formal complaint. Individuals who have concerns about discrimination or harassment based on sex or other protected characteristics 
uh, they may choose to submit a bias report or submit a complaint to the office called IDEA. Lastly, individuals with additional suggestions for how to make Title IX processes more inclusive can actually share their feedback anonymously using a Title IX feedback form. All of this information I'm going to give to you, Esme and, and Noah, so that uh, you can share it out so that everyone has this at their fingertips. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, so when we're thinking about this trauma-informed care at many different levels, in our friendships, at the institutional level, and even within our criminal justice system, how can we contribute or factor in this lens of undocumentation to this overarching lens? Okay, this is an amazing question. Um, first, I would say the very first thing is everyone in these systems are human, right? And so I think first, we, um, we do not perpetuate harm. Uh, second, we keep centering who we are fighting for. Not uh, a lot of times the conversation is who are we fighting against, right? In so many domains of activism. But I think it's so important to remember who are we fighting for and centering that. So first, do not perpetuate harm. Okay, so being trauma-informed starts first within ourselves, first as individuals. As you know, I love somatics. So how can we first start with knowing and honoring consent in our own bodies? How do I honor my body when something feels off? Do I listen to it? Do I push it away? How do you honor when your body's thirsty? How can we possibly hold space for another person's deep feelings if we cannot hold space for our own vulnerable feelings, right? And so if we really wanna show up as allies and friends uh, to an undocumented survivor, we have to be able to cultivate space for our own vulnerable feelings so that we can hold space for someone else. So if you're in the habit of escaping, numbing, getting very overwhelmed, uh, or rejecting your own truth and feelings, I think chances are uh, you will do, you might do the same thing at a conscious or probably unconscious level to someone else. And so we always wanna, we always want to first do no harm. And that starts with ourselves, not harming ourselves. Sometimes we're not the best person for that particular student or for that particular conversation. Um, on the flip side, uh, you can be supremely loving friend, um, but you don't, um, but practically you just don't have the training or expertise to help um, beyond your friendship, beyond your, your love and care and support as a friend. So you always have to honor your boundaries and, and help connect your friend to trusted support. Um, so I often say this a lot, and we, we say this a lot in, in yoga, we, we can't really help to heal others from a broken heart, no matter how much we want to. And so we have to be in this regular practice of tending to and mending our own wounds, learning and accepting another's reality, even if it's different from our own, and unlearning assumptions uh, we may have made about undocumented human beings. As humans in these practices, we can then build trauma-informed events 
that are mindful of clear steps and alternatives or alternatives, um, different ways of navigating the world, being inclusive in language, um, inclusive in cultural practices, thoughtful discussions, and even how we follow through. So even if that means saying at the moment, I don't know, and then you have to lean into your privilege as a citizen or other privileged identities or connections um, to find out. You have to find out and follow through with that. So it's okay to say you don't know. Um, hopefully we're giving out a lot of information today, so you will know. Um, but if you don't know, it's okay to say that, right? Um, I really recommend to be in practices of just regularly checking in with yourself checking in with your own body sensations, staying as long as you can with uncomfortable knots, feelings, thoughts, emotions. Um, and this can be done in so many ways through walking or meditation, body scans, journaling, somatics, dance, yoga, um, or talk or movement therapies. Um, this is especially important uh, when someone's disclosing to you and you yourself are a survivor because sometimes we bring each other's stuff up, right? And so it's super important to be able to be able to check in with yourself um, to hold space for another. So um, remember, just remember that, you know, friendships are really about safety, trust, shared experiences, inside jokes, uh, quality time together. It, it's also about being there for each other in hard times and seeing that your friends can hold that space for you and, and be with you there so that you can just be who you are and feel what you're feeling. So um, this was just reminding me of uh, my former student. She once said to me, um, you were the first person who believed me without hesitation without questions. And, and that's always stuck with me. And I know I was able to hold that space for her because I've held that space for myself. So the second part I wanted to talk about that I mentioned earlier is centering in who we are fighting for, not always who we're fighting against. Um, so, so often activists burn out because we focus so much time and energy centering and calling out oppressive forces and systems and enemies. Um, while these initial feelings of aliveness kind of feel infectious at first, uh, they can also be splintering. They can also perpetuate systems that we're trying to dismantle, um, which all can lead to kind of a sense of daunting overwhelm, uh, a feeling of disconnection. And, and sometimes that depletes our energy. And so making a conscious effort in action to center who we are fighting for, it kind of wakens us up. It wakens us up to see possibilities and has a more generative, I would say, inspiring energy around it. I'm not talking here about toxic positivity. I'm talking about the energy you feel when you remember who you're fighting for and the strength and resilience that naturally brings to your body, the aliveness you start to feel in your body, the motivation that brings. Um, and that's gonna be different how that feels for each person, but you can feel it. So how can we hold people and systems accountable 
while consistently returning to center and uplifting survivors, their consented stories, uh, their successful navigation of systems, um, their healing. So it's not toxic positivity, but a grounded possible pathway to healing. Thank you so much. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, I think going off of what you previously said about centering conscious efforts, with this in mind, what does allyship look like at the intersection of undocumented survivors and sexual violence prevention? So some of what we spoke about earlier just now, um, allyship can look like that. Um, Allyship is also, I would say, companionship and advocacy, and uh, it centers a person's dignity. Hearing marginalized voices, um, hearing their needs, hearing undocumented voices and needs, it's so important. And it's, uh, allyship can be you know, a whole range of behaviors, uh, knowing when to lean into and leverage your own privileges and connections to be a change, be a change agent. Um, other times it's knowing when to sit back and be quiet and make space for undocumented voices. Um, so it can be both individual and collective. I identify as a Latinx and white cisgendered woman. Uh, so working with first generation low-income students and undocumented students for uh, 12 years now um, has meant that, you know, being in it, it really has meant being in a constant practice of deep listening, learning, a lot of unlearning, um, and acknowledging my privilege to push for six systemic changes. Um, it means, you know, being calm sometimes, other times being an agitator. <laughs> uh, a lot of times it's also about messing up and apologizing where there was harm and then committing to doing better and then doing better and going right back in. Um, so allyship is really imperfect, um, but it's absolutely, absolutely necessary. Um, we absolutely need allies um, in this work and we have to do it without perpetuating harm. We have to do it without perpetuating systems of silence, oppression, or savior complexes. I think it's also important to recognize that identities can hold privilege in the interpersonal, but not necessarily in the systems. And so it's important to cultivate awareness and acknowledge both how we can be companions for each other on that journey, especially shared journeys. So. So let's say, let me give you an example, because that seems kind of dense. Um, so recognizing that identities can hold privilege in the interpersonal, but not necessarily in the system. Okay, so here's an example of that. Um, a former student uh, who self-identifies as directly impacted as an undocumented male student uh you know we, we would talk all the time but on one particular day he was super frustrated with the inability of others 
to see their privileges and act on them for systemic change for undocumented people. And we had lengthy conversations about this. And uh, so he kind of began this journey of looking into areas in his own life where he held privilege. One of the best things I ever saw was this very popular guy walk into a big group meeting that we were having in our multi-purpose center. Um, so, so we walk in and he has this very, very um, unique way of commanding attention when he walks into the room. And as usual, he did that um, and people kind of quieted down and, and, and we began our meeting. Um, a new undocumented female, uh, she was a newer leader and, and she really wanted to share some ideas at this meeting um, and kind of get work on her next steps and, and ask for support from others. So um, he saw others though, kind of looking for him to lead the meeting. And, and what was interesting was while they were looking at him, he didn't retreat back into his old ways of just leading. Um, so he actually leaned back and called everyone's attention to what she was talking about. He was the first person to offer support and many followed that lead. Um, it was very electric. It, like the moment we could really feel it, a, a shift in the power dynamics of how that meeting had run many times before. And I think they both stepped into their power that night. She stepped up and into her own voice, taking up her space in a room and he sat back and was quiet. So later, you know, a week later or so, he uh, came to my office and we were chatting as usual. And, and he shared with me how hard that was to do with the pressure on him to show up in another way. But how much it was needed to be done, how much it was, how much, how much it needed to be done. So allyship is really the work of all of us, but most importantly, from those who understand and hold privilege in systems. So healing is an ongoing process of mending, as well as building power, resilience, and resistance to transform systems of oppression. So I'll read that to you one more time because this is one of my favorite definitions of healing. Healing is an ongoing process of mending as well as building power, resilience, and resistance to transform systems of oppression. Okay, so I think let's talk a little bit about, can I talk a little bit about prevention here? For sure, go ahead. So I would say, these have been some practices um, for prevention, interpersonal violence per, uh, prevention, sexual assault prevention. Uh, there's a, been a lot of creation of uh, really empowering education materials. Um, and maybe we can put some of those together and, and share that to our listeners. Um, a lot of these materials speak to various cultural values and ways of knowing. Um, sharing, sharing materials from an empowered viewpoint, people helping people versus kind of predator fear, like 
versus predator fear-based viewpoints um, that we saw uh, many years ago, right? I think that's been a big shift is more empowered viewpoints. Um, I would say another thing is offering practices to learn or relearn how consent feels in your own body through sensation, through intuition, through emotion. I think it is very important in prevention because this kind of informs the shape and texture of setting and honoring boundaries from you know, the individual to the collective. Um, this can sometimes be challenging to learn within perhaps our own nuanced cultural contexts or pressures, especially if our cultures um, kind of have more of a collective worldview than an individual worldview. So unlearning might be part of these practices. Only you would really know. I think uh, prevention could also benefit from establishing safety nets um, in groups going out, bystander interventions. Um, even if it's socially awkward at the moment, it's so important to look out for each other in social settings and act on our instincts when we feel something's off. And I think prevention also is about offering systemic education on serving undocumented communities. Um, the more information that's out there, the more education that's out there, thoughtful, empowered viewpoints and education. I think that could really help. So I think um, prevention is, you know, being human as we spoke about, but um, logistically, I would say listen, believe, learn and foster agency. So first listening and believing do not require like an in-depth knowledge of all the systems of being undocumented. It doesn't require you to be undocumented, um, but it does require being a human being. So sometimes listeners get overwhelmed by the, by the complexity of undocumented survivor stories. And, and then it kind of falls on the survivor to help you cope and help you learn. And I've heard that from undocu survivors, um, that they over that the person they disclosed to got extremely overwhelmed. And then they felt they needed to support them and their emotions versus the flip side, right? So you have to do your own research as an ally. You have to work both internally and externally. And this is how we build a community of care. Um, what an undocumented individual experiences on a daily basis often in, involves like a whole set of complex and kind of near superhuman skills that most people cannot fathom in a day, yet alone decades of living in the US. Um, so listening and accepting undocumented stories as true, just as they are, without playing the devil's advocate, without ex over explaining or mansplaining, accepting undocumented stories as true, just as they are. So sometimes this make, may make people with citizenship uncomfortable because it tends to shine a bright, huge light on your personal unseen privileges. And that may give you a rub. So, 
the ways those of us who are citizens, you know, the way we go about our knowing in the world, um, as well as how we can operate in systems, um, it really kind of pulls back our veils and calls us to question what we thought was real or solid or consistent. So you need to sit with that really uncomfortable feeling and kind of accept that you're feeling ungrounded and that maybe the things you thought were not, were not true. So I would say next, foster agency in the next steps. As we know, undocumented survivors range in feelings and experiences and have a wide range of emotions, just like all other survivors. Some may want to take action, others may not for the reasons we talked about earlier. So sharing knowledge and practical step-by-step -step actions and contacts are really important and honoring their decisions no matter what. Um, if they want to pursue some and not others, that's their choice and empower them by letting them know that, reassuring them that every step is their choice. Mm, I think having choices helps you to kind of explore avenues, um, which avenues you can do anonymously, which ones would require um, your name, um, perhaps doing exploring avenues that do not require police presence. Um, and I think also exploring avenues to provide medical care. And if someone could support the undocu survivor through that. I think, uh, I guess even more practically, making sure, you know, communication for, um, I would say like events or, or seminars or, or anything going on on campus, just making sure that the communication is explicit and inclusive of all survivors, regardless of immigration status. Um, seeing that and hearing that, it allows people to maybe enter a space that they may have before not shown up in. Um, and then I think it's not just advertising, but making sure that the people you bring into those spaces, um, making sure ahead of time, like, do they know how this would impact uh, a survivor? a survivor regardless of their immigration status. Because um, we wanna make sure that undocumented survivors can experience being at the event and receiving resources offered and, and receiving positive, warm attitudes. Um, all of this is super important. So asking your guest speaker to prepare and be knowledgeable about undocumented survivors ahead of time is kind of an example of an inclusive practice. Um, and so I guess I will, um, I wanted to share with you a quote. This is uh, from Joanna Foote Williams. She uh, works at the Kino Border Initiative. And, and I absolutely love this, but it says that when we talk about allyship, love leads us on the journey of acompañamiento, which means solidarity. So love leads us on the journey of solidarity. Um, and, and I think this quote of hers is amazing. I think a theme throughout this work is that the relationships of love 
invite us into the next step to the journey of solidarity. Um, that is absolutely beautiful and so well put. Um, so moving towards this kind of um, solidarity, but also um, healing and growth. Um, I was wondering what are some strengths and improvements when it comes to addressing healing from sexual harm and how we can kind of use this idea of solidarity as perhaps a form of healing. So, okay, so what are some strengths and improvements when it comes to addressing healing uh, from sexual harm? Um, so we actually have a trauma expert in our CAPS office. Uh, her name is Mina. She recently joined our, undocu, um, our undocumented student support services task force, and our task force is made up of a number of faculty and staff throughout the university. So Mina just recently joined us. Um, so undocu survivors um, may be interested in trauma support. You know, as we spoke to earlier, trauma definitely lives in the body. And, um, and the survivor can obviously choose when is the right time. Um, I would also say that sometimes a trauma can trigger a past trauma. And, and maybe that past trauma hasn't been processed. And so that might come up as well. I've also seen kind of that happen with friends, you know. Um, I know, for example, um, many, many years ago, uh, one of our students uh, was a identified as, as someone healing from sexual harm. And when she shared her story, uh, a number of students later came to me and they said, you know what? I went through something like that a long time ago. And it kind of brought that up for them. And it was, they realized it was time for them to process. And so we got them connected to services. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I think just for a final question to wrap up our conversation today, what does equity and access look like in communities when thinking about undocumented survivor needs, such as medical care, reporting options, resources, et cetera? Sure, um, I will definitely make sure we share this out, um, but really it's about care for the whole person. We talk about that a lot at Georgetown, right? So we really do need to consider care for the whole person. Um, and have policies and practices that, that uplift that. So survivors need access to a high level of care. Um, they need access to personal considerations and, and resources regardless of, of their status. Um, some personal considerations are, are different with every survivor. So obviously personalizing approaches is, is paramount. And, you know, definitely to build trust and safety. Um, and there's, I guess, no one way to support an undocu survivor. Um, so, but I'll share some general guidance. Uh, so undocu survivors may not want to call the police or interact with the police. Um, this can be extremely trigger triggering and unsafe. So honor this request. Undocu survivors um, may need a trusted support person with them in the hospital with them to receive care, uh, to receive their medical care. 
Um, though I would say that predominantly the students I've worked with in my capacity, they grew up here in the US. Many speak English fluently. Um, and, but a lot of a lot of undocumented students, this is this is um, a time of crisis, and they may really want their home language. Their home language might be comforting, and so having people uh, to to support through interpreting, uh, through offering support in the hospital. Um, so those, you know, language is a is, is such a nuanced thing, right? It can be very supporting to have someone who speaks your home language or your home dialect um, with you. So that might be a consideration. Um, I would say undocu survivors um, may want to report right away, later, or never. So giving options to report anonymously for the future um, is super important. Um, there are some mandatory reporters who are semi-confidential and this means they have to report incidences of sexual misconduct when they become aware of it um, so knowing you know who to report this to um, is often something that comes up a lot um, undocu survivors um, who choose to disclose they may not want to disclose their status or tell their story to more than one person. Um, so they may need an advocate or liaison to relay important information back and forth to them. Um, so, you know, sometimes uh, I serve as a liaison. Um, that way they don't have to be in all these meetings or all these emails. Um, and I always do that, of course, with the student leading me in terms of how can I help? What feels helpful to you now um, and so and so having kind of a liaison sometimes that helps um, in my experience uh, undocu survivors may wish to report anonymously either with the institution um, but due to fear of exposing their undocumented status there's no obligation to include their name uh, there's no obligation for them to include their name or identifying information in a report of sexual misconduct. Um, however, if they want to file a complaint, um, which initiates kind of a student conduct process, uh, that cannot be anonymous. So um, that's important to, di to distinguish. Undocumented survivors can apply for federal U visas um, that protect survivors from being deported. Um, it is important to check in with an immigration attorney about U visas, and luckily here at Georgetown, we offer Undocu Hoyas free legal consultations uh, through Catholic Charities, and so that could be an option. Um, I would say when people are in crisis, they, they kind of need step-by-step -step support, uh, not overwhelming someone with a ton of information before they're ready to receive it, so I think step-by-step. Offering choices uh, where choices are actually applicable. Um, that's, and I think offering those choices in kind of a calm, de-escalating way. I think that really helps a survivor, um, helps also to increase a sense of agency. So, you know, too much information can be overwhelming. And, 
And I think also it's so important to remember that healing is ongoing and it's layered. And each step we can support someone through healing or support our own selves through healing um, is, is an amazing act of love. And so um, I think we're at time now, right? So um, we, should we close with a centering practice, do you think? Yeah, that would be lovely. Okay. Okay, well, we've talked about a lot here. So um, talking, now I think we could just use a little bit of love and kindness. So let's try, this is something called the Tunglin meditation. Um, and it kind of smooths emotions, um, kind of offers feelings of love and care in the community. And, um, and I think we'll leave us here on the podcast and those listening. Um, my goal is for you to feel informed and strong and connected. So, so here, let's, let's end with this Tonglen medica- uh, meditation. So centering again in your width, centering in your length, bringing your spine up, centering in your depth, not too far forward, not too far back. And then just bringing your palms to your heart center. Taking a nice, deep, relaxing breath in. Big breath out. One more time. Let's try this for a count of four. Inhaling in for a count of four. Big exhale out. Good. And so now what we're going to do is with our hands in our heart or on our belly or in a place in our body that needs a little warmth, go ahead and put your hands there. And here we're gonna take in a deep breath and breathe out. Now this next breath, we're gonna imagine that we can breathe in the suffering of another. And we're not gonna hold that in our body. We're just gonna try and breathe it in as if if we can support someone by taking in their pain and suffering. And then as we exhale out, we're gonna exhale out. We're going to exhale out loving kindness for them. So whatever you picture as loving kindness, whatever you picture as healing. So that could be colors, could be music. It could be a feeling, it could be an emotion. And so let's practice this together, okay? So here we go, breathing in. Breathing in that pain, holding. One more sip of air, breathing in. And then exhale out. 
Imagining we can transform that pain into love and kindness, into healing for someone. Now go ahead and try this again in silence. Breathing in. Exhaling out. And now this time, as we breathe in, notice any parts of your own inside sensations, bodies, feelings, emotions, anywhere in your body. It's kind of a little tight right now. It's kind of a little unsure. And just breathing into that space, noticing that space, exhaling out. Allowing that kind of tension to leave your body. And now just offering love and kindness for yourself, for your own feel, for your own healing, for your own journey. And now gently relax your hands, relax your shoulders, relax your lower back and hips. Taking a deep breath in and a big breath out. So I hope that that smooths some emotions and feelings for you. I hope that you're feeling a little more love and care in community by participating in our podcast today. And um, I hope I hope you feel informed. I hope you feel stronger. I hope you feel more connected. Thank you again for having me. Thank you so much, Jen, for joining us today and for leading us through that breathing exercise. I think that, you know, it's really important to talk about the experiences and specific barriers facing undocumented survivors, especially considering that undocumented stories are often silenced, diminished, and not centered. And especially considering that Georgetown, like many universities, is a PWI or a predominantly white institution, we as a student body and community need to do a lot more when it comes to educating ourselves and listening. So once again, thank you, Jen, for coming on and for pro providing our students with this opportunity to educate themselves. Also, if you want to learn more about what SAFE is doing, make sure to check us out on Instagram at GU underscore SAFE. Once again, thank you, Jen, and thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Safe Speaks.